When we hear about assault, most of us immediately think about sexual and physical assault. And rightfully so, you know, because our society and media only ever portrays assault to be of two kinds. We need to understand that assault isn't just limited to physical and sexual assault, but also emotional, financial, isolation, and there's a lot more. On this episode of Yours Mentally, we talk all about assault. I would recommend if you could listen to this episode at full length because it's been one of the most important and helpful episodes I've done on the podcast so far. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. So on today's episode where we talk about abuse and mental health, Jahan, can you tell us what are the different kinds of abuse? I think that is a great question. So for us to know what they are, right? I think starting with we need to know what abuse is uh, especially when we speak about like a domestic violence pattern it is something that is a repeated pattern of behavior right so it's not a one time thing a one time thing can count as uh, an assault or a, a violation or uh, we talk about rape right so a repeated pattern of behavior when something's happening again and again in uh, mm-hmm. relationships we say that that is then abuse right and mm-hmm. abuse can occur between partners you know i think when we talk about domestic violence we think that it's only between uh, like partners or romantically but it can also be between family members so i have worked with people who whose abusers were their children i've worked mm-hmm. with people whose abusers were their parents right mm-hmm. other family members that you're living with so it's kind of like that dynamic there are different kinds so i think if you kind of broadly look at it physical abuse is to start with one of the ones that we're kind of you know most familiar with or oh, physical abuse right then there is so physical abuse could be and also again giving a a trigger warning to people who may be listening who are you know if you have a trauma history and if you're listening to this uh, i think this is a good point to give a trigger warning cuz things might get overwhelming and you can kind of you know can tune out but physically we can see like hitting beating slapping all of those things kicking shoving against the wall they all come under physical abuse mm-hmm. then we have sexual abuse which is domestic rape mm-hmm. rape in general right if you are forcing or coercing other people to engage in sexual acts with you when you don't have their consent then it counts as sexual abuse mm-hmm. we also have verbal and emotional abuse then there's psychological abuse which is playing a lot of mind games we also have financial abuse so messing with someone's financial resources and then we also have identity abuse so using privilege if any kind of privilege so people let's suppose if you were in a country where it was hard to get a visa and your partner is someone who doesn't have a visa and you kind of threaten them okay you know i'm going to i'm going to tell the police or i'm going to tell on you or i'm going to get you deported so mm-hmm. in any kind of way using that privilege to threaten someone's identity or letting people know from the lgbtq community that i'm i'm just going to out you i'm going to let people know you know that you're this way especially in conservative mm-hmm. communities so that's yeah. a big threat so yeah there's some of the some of the types i think for people who are listening a really good resource is the power and control wheel so that is something that you can find on google you can search it up the power and control wheel is about uh, domestic violence in particular and there it has all these categories in the wheel of you know things that survivors do go through and patterns and how that looks like one of the things in that is isolation and i feel like people are not too familiar with isolation So when we say isolation is an abuse tactic what do we really mean like what is what is what do you mean isolation 
so a lot of the times in abusive relationships the perpetrator has a habit of isolating the survivor so mentioning that they're not allowed to see their friends or they're not allowed to you know go home or there are you know i want you to not wear this or i wouldn't want you to go out right so it's kind of like isolating so a lot of people stay very much connected with primarily the abuser or primarily the perpetrator in relationships like these right and isolation mm-hmm. is also built so the survivor is relying mostly on the perpetrator so it's like the the perpetrator is their uh, like primary source of of everything another kind of abuse that is mentioned on the power and control wheel is intimidation so intimidation is is interesting because it's not physical right they're not beating someone but i think i'll give you an example so i work with people who say you know my husband isn't abusive because well he throws things around but they never touch me i mean he's mm-hmm. never the objects have never hit me mm-hmm. the act of throwing things around to scare someone or breaking things on the wall or you know breaking tables or chairs or things like that that is an intimidation tactic that is to say you know be scared of me back off you know listen to me i've come under my control so that's another one that i think a lot of people don't know is isolation and intimidation also on the power and control wheel you'll find that perpetrators have a tendency to use children as an abuse tactic as well so turning mm-hmm. the children against the against the survivor or using things like you know your your you know your mother or father is not a good person or they are you know this and that and sometimes i have worked with cases where the perpetrator is joining in with the kids the, the children are joining in with the perpetrator to abuse the the victim to abuse the survivor so you know using children to become like oh even to spy spy is one of them so using mm-hmm. children to you know go look at your mama's phone and let me know what's on it right things like that and then threats as well mm-hmm. so threats are again it's a form of a psychological bullying and violence so when we talk about threats it's a lot of you know i will do this or i will do that again we look at that repeated pattern of behavior of you know just trying to control the other person and then we say that threats intimidation isolation using children it all comes under the power and control wheel and which is uh, about uh, different types of abuse yeah right so jahan you just spoke about emotional abuse right so can you tell us what exactly constitutes emotional abuse right i think emotional abuse is a lot about breaking down someone's self esteem to a level where they don't trust themselves so it's about using a lot of degradation as a way to lower the self esteem it's telling the other person that no one's ever going to love you or accept you other than me you will never find love other than me right these are again control tactics making the person stay emotional abuse is a lot about neglecting the other person emotional abuse often makes the victim doubt their sanity so i know that a lot of people these days are very familiar with the term gaslighting right <laughs> so emotional abuse and psychological abuse gaslighting does come under it so for people who are not familiar gaslighting was this term that came from a play in yeah, 1938 yeah. Mm-hmm. and usme in in that play the protagonist is basically the husband who is kind of manipulating his wife like, into believing yeah. that she's going she's going mad right mm-hmm. so what he does is he switches lights on and off so in this in the way that play is called gaslight and the term is mostly now in modern day we see that happening with you know moving the car keys 
So the survivor comes in and they put the car keys in one place and the abuser just, you know, makes them, the, the car keys are vanished or the abuser has placed them somewhere else. And now the survivor just really thinks like they're really going mad, right? Mm-hmm. Or just changing things in the house or just psychological mind games, a lot of those. And uh, yeah, it's 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 really debilitating and it's it's way worse than than physical abuse because it doesn't, you know, it's not, you, you can't just look at someone and be like, oh, you know, they have been abused because with physical abuse, we can tell. I have worked with a lot of people who thought that they weren't getting abused just because they were getting emotionally abused because the mainstream definition when we when we look at abuse or when we say domestic violence, something that's physical always comes to our mind, right? We always think, oh, this, this has to be like beating or bruising or some yeah. sort of rape or assault happening for it, it to be abuse. But emotional abuse is definitely there and it's real. And over a sustained period of time, it causes severe mental health issues. And it's, uh, it's very much there. Yeah, I feel like it's always neglected you know and i'm not just saying in india and for you in pakistan as well but in gen- like generally everywhere like media often shows us that abuse can only be physical like like you mentioned you know people only always speak about physical abuse and people don't understand like how you know damaging emotional abuse can really be like i'm sure you'll see a lot of times when people are emotionally abused in a relationship they'll just label you know their partner as a toxic partner or, you know, they just like to believe that their partner is having like a bad day or something and they're behaving the way they did and, you know, did, did the things they did because they were just not having a good day. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. So it's about making a lot of excuses for the for the toxic partner. We see that it's about just losing your sense of identity, not knowing, you know, where you're at, where you're coming from. It, it does a lot of brain fogging. I work with people who suffer with a lot of brain fog because when you're looking, when you're living in abusive situations, even though if there's no physical violence, if you're getting really brain fogged and confused and you don't know what your reality is. I'm sure that there are certain categories of emotional or psychological abuse that are happening that are leading to that, right? Right. So, Jahan, people often tend to take emotional abuse lightly, like I just said, you know, because it doesn't leave any visible marks like physical abuse does. How would you bust this misconception? Well, I would say emotional abuse is the worst kind of abuse. Mm -hmm. It's a wound that takes its time to heal. I mean, even with physical abuse, that lasting impact is not because there's a cut or a bruise that just gets fixed with band-aids. It's about what that does to the mind, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, if you look at it that way, physical abuse is also emotional abuse because the scars, they heal. Our skin skin cells regenerate. That's gone in Mm -hmm. a while. But it's more about even physical abuse is emotional abuse because it's about what is this doing to my system? How is this affecting me? You know, um, emotional abuse changes the way that we relate to the world. It, mm-hmm. ch- it gives us trust issues. It gives us a severely different idea. It changes our whole paradigm. It changes our relationship with ourselves, right? So a lot of people who are struggling sometimes with imposter syndrome or perfectionism or low self-esteem or insecurities or addiction and all of these things are sometimes coming from places where these people have been really, really emotionally abused. And it also leads to intimacy issues. So a lot of people are very, they're very afraid of getting into, you know, new relationships after having been an emotionally abusive ones. So it's it's definitely a very, very important and a very pertinent part of abuse is, is that emotional abuse piece. Again, even with physical abuse even when the band-aids and the medicine fixes it it's it's the emotional scar that remains and you know i would also like to add like i believe i could be wrong but to even know about emotional abuse i think it's you can also like it you can also attribute privilege to that 
because in rural and marginalized communities how many times would you like you know actually see them talking about emotional abuse it's almost like you know nothing they don't talk about it like because they don't know about emotional abuse and even physical abuse it's always neglected you know in rural and marginalized communities right absolutely i would even say that a lot of physical abuse is normalized like yeah. people would say well you know this is okay or i guess oh it's just a slap you know husband slap so what right mm-hmm. and especially in the kind of communities that you're saying yeah emotional abuse isn't taken very seriously we have a lot of even with verbal abuse so name calling your partner or your family member or whoever you know the survivor is a lot of name calling it really just degrades you and, and gets your self esteem super low because when you've heard it like 20 times for every day of your life it sets in even if you're strong enough not to believe it there's a part of you that will very strongly believe that i'm not worthy because you've heard it every day so yeah definitely i i i definitely agree with you yeah right so jahan what is the difference between manifestation of emotions versus physical abuse in our behavior right i think there are similar effects so someone who has been physically abused they may have a very complicated relationship with their body we may feel that we don't have any control over it right mm-hmm. so this is also when people engage in self soothing behaviors which can look like addiction addiction is a self soothing behavior excessive mm-hmm. smoking is a self soothing behavior any kind of substance use right someone who has received physical trauma they will get overwhelmed more than someone who's not and for a lot of people who are especially struggling with ptsd things can be very triggering similar sights or sounds or thoughts and memories so it's a manifestation of when we have been in places where our bodies have felt so helpless and so powerless and we've just had to be there it makes us lose trust of our body so a lot of the times in ptsd treatment and anxiety treatment we focus so much on the body as well and now you know it's so it's so common to perform activities such as grounding and breathing and yoga but these things really do help because it it's a place of kind of getting your body back to homeostasis right back mm-hmm. to an equilibrium but people who have had physical trauma histories their bodies can send them very quickly into a fight or flight response right so they can get triggered very easily sometimes people engage in more sex people who've had especially a complex trauma or childhood rape or assault sometimes they grow up to engage in more sex and this doesn't make sense to people because they're like well that doesn't make sense they should be afraid of it but sometimes mm-hmm. it's a way of getting control back in your body or making sure that you can trust your body again mm-hmm. so that does show up on the other hand they could be very paranoid and they could be very mistrustful as well so it shows in, in a lot of body signs some people may not be comfortable in going for a hug or even a handshake and you'd see that they might get really physically uncomfortable if you don't take their consent or even if you're sitting pretty close uh, for other people it it maybe doesn't show at all so i think it's really really depends on people someone who's been emotionally abused um, some of the things are they'll say sorry a lot mm-hmm. people who've been in abusive relationships are the first to apologize they always think everything's their fault they're sometimes not aware of their own needs in relationships because they've been, always been taught that there's someone else whose needs you need to fulfill yeah this is this mark that you need to uh, like come up to right and they can never come up to that mark because it's an abusive relationship so it's always a lot of like apologizing they're not aware of what their own needs are in relationships so a lot of therapy work is about like what do you need in a relationship so as opposed to thinking like oh what can i give my partner let's let's flip that question back what can what what can your partner give you what do you need in a relationship 
right? Mm-hmm. So they have a habit of putting others before themselves. Again, talking about emotional abuse. People who have been emotionally abused can also be more prone to being controlled because they can get scared very easily. They can be more vulnerable to these things as well. Mm-hmm. I work with a lot of people who have been in abusive relationships multiple times in their lives, right? It's not just been one. They're like, I've been in an abusive relationship two, three, four, five, seven times. So it does happen that we kind of have this vulnerability then to be like more prone to people who are controlling or feel attracted to them, which is something a whole, we could have another whole other podcast on that. But yeah, just putting up people about themselves. Uh, People who've been emotionally abused can struggle with low self-esteem, depression, anxiety. So yeah, there's, there's lots of things that could come with that. I think a great way to navigate, especially, you know, if you're working with people who you know may have a history of especially being physically abused or mentally, emotionally abused, is just consent, right? Even for a hug or a handshake. I think even with people with, you know, trauma history or no trauma history, we should be like, is it okay if I shake your hand? Or is it okay if I give you a hug, right? Because we can't, it's it's not going to be something that's going to be blinking in neon lights on their head. We're just going to have to have good trauma-informed manners to kind of interact with people, right? This is very important. It, It gives survivors a lot of autonomy, right? Oh, I have autonomy in who touches my body? Great, you know? So you're giving them a lot of, lot of control yeah um, the whole part where you spoke about you know how even hugging people can kind of make them uncomfortable mm-hmm. <clears throat> i feel like people don't understand that like they've generalized this thing you know that hugging is like a sign of love and you know everyone should be okay with it like that's that's what people have generalized and so before hugging someone or even shaking their hand they don't ask for consent mm-hmm. because you know they think how damaging could it be like that's what people think right but they don't understand that it can be very damaging. Absolutely. And Aman, you know, in our in our cultures, we see that a lot of people would be so quick to pull the cheeks of someone's child or hold them yeah. in their lap. And I think another really important point, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but is asking children for their consent as well and making sure that they're not uncomfortable. Because we assume that children may consent doesn't matter. <laughs> because they're kids so we can pull their cheek we can make them sit on our laps we can be like oh give auntie uncle a hug maybe the child doesn't feel like doing that and if you notice your child being uncomfortable don't force them to do that yeah. you know give them that choice that if you want to you can but if you don't want to it's fine it's okay no one's going to get offended so i think yeah you're absolutely right hugging is not there's no one uh you know like oh hugs are great no it's really not it's, it's about consent so I think a concept that kind of comes to my mind is something that Deb Dana, she is a social worker. She works mm-hmm. a lot with polyvagal theory. She talks about something called cues of safety or signs of safety, right? Uh-huh. So signs of safety are these subconscious things that our brain brains are picking up. So our brain is picking up, oh, is it safe to be here? Because sometimes there's just subconscious cues, like it could be with the weather or with the way that someone's looking at us or the colors around us, things like these, right? Subconsciously, when we're feeling safe, That means that the person is picking up certain cues of safety around them. So if a person, you know, if survivors, they deem safety and a hug can be a really grounding and great, beautiful thing. It's really important, you know, that kind of closure and body work, um, somatic therapies are so good for trauma treatment. But again, you have to kind of see that is someone getting, you know, uncomfortable with that. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's always, it's never going to be against you to ask for consent. It's always going to be a good idea. Sometimes people, another, I think, point that's kind of coming to my mind is sometimes people will feel disgusted, especially who have had a trauma history, Mm -hmm. if they hug themselves or if someone else hugs them, because there's a certain kind of disgust that they feel about their bodies and sometimes things come up. 
Uh, so there's feelings of like inadequacy or that the other person is being fake or they don't actually really like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be hard for survivors to accept compliments because somewhere in their mind, they're not enough because they were never enough for their abusive partner or never enough for their abusive mother. So now yeah. when people see them enough, it's like, what? There's this whole new set of information. I don't know what to do with it because I don't have any practice in being enough. So now when someone gives me a hug or is nice to me, it almost feels yucky. Like, what is this? You're not, you're not like kind of uh, not used to it. So, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like another thing is people don't know where to draw the line between romance and consent, you know. Here's the thing. Say, right. like, I remember one of my friends telling me this, that uh, you know when, you know, you like someone and they like you back and you know exactly when you want to kiss them. And I'm just telling, like, you're not asking for their consent, <laughs> but you're just assuming that, you know, they want that perfect, cheesy, romantic moment to happen. I don't think you should ever do that day. It should always be consensual, even like, you know, even if you're like very much in the romantic moment of yours, mm-hmm. you need to ask for consent because what if they don't like it? Mm-hmm. You know, people never consider that. They always want that cliche romance of theirs. They don't really think twice before, you know, doing something. It's it's very common in our culture. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. And I think there's a lot of misconception that we have that oh, consent is, it's not something sexy. So a lot of couples or a lot of people be like, oh, but that would just ruin a couple's mood, like just constantly mm-hmm. asking someone for consent. But it's about breaking these stereotypes. It's about when both partners or whoever, you know, when your partner, whoever you're ha- engaging in intimacy with, when people are comfortable, you're going to have a better experience. All people are going to have a better experience. When they're there's comfort from both sides and if there's just comfort from your side and the other person is not enjoying then we maybe want to take a step back and check in on what's happening there yeah and also like i think even media plays a role here you know they'll always show us in movies like when the partners are getting intimate you know it builds up from them kissing to kind of having sex immediately the whole Mm -hmm. part about consent is not shown only so you know kids are like they're grown thinking that you know that's how it should be like They'll, they'll never uh, ask for consent. Like how many times would you see in movies that people are actually asking their partner for consent before? Probably never. Never. Probably never. <laughs> exactly. Because then, you know, it would kind of ruin the movie in a way for, mm-hmm. you know, people mm-hmm. watching it. I, I mean, that's how they see it. Even though it it's ruining nothing. In fact, it's just educating people about the bare mm-hmm. minimum thing. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think media also plays a very interesting role in how abuse and consent is shown because we say, oh, if a, if a woman is saying no, that just means she wants it, but she just can't say yes to you. So yeah. when she's constantly saying no, 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 it just means that she's teasing you, mm-hmm. right? Which is a horrifyingly abusive concept to normalize in media. Exactly. Yeah, the whole playing hard to get. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So Jahan's survivors often have difficulties opening up to new people or even with the people they've known for a long time. How can they help themselves trust others in relationships again? And do you think it's even necessary for them to trust anyone at all? I think it depends if they want to trust someone. I have people who come to me who want to be out there, but there's so much baggage from my previous relationship that it's making it hard for me to even be open to people. I was recently also been working with people who were like, I come off as too strong and too uh, stern and strict. And I feel people don't approach me because of that. Or maybe I have had my own experiences which have made me be that way around people. But I think one of the ways to to trust, start building trust in relationships or the world is to begin building trust with you. Starting counseling work, getting mental health support, right? 
there's a, a lot of the times I feel that survivors hold this uh, sort of irrational guilt that we hang on to on, you know, why didn't I do this? Or why didn't I see mm-hmm. the signs earlier? Or how stupid was I that I listened to, you know, this person? Or, yeah. you know, why couldn't I do this or that? Or when I did, why didn't I stand up for myself? And it's, it's going to be your process in trusting other people has to be interesting that you did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. When someone is abusing you, it's our natural reaction as a human to have these reactions come up. You know, we talk a lot about the people pleasing response and the fawn response and how, you know, we tend to behave in situations where we're feeling threatened. And that mm-hmm. does happen. So maybe even, you know, starting by making a self-esteem journal, you know, do self-esteem enhancing exercises. Try to notice things in your day that you're grateful for, things that you're doing well. Because if your sense of self and identity has has been really diminished being with someone like that then we need to kind of start from scratch with you not not let's not jump to the relationships you just start with building trust with yourself i think i would also recommend making a list of red flags in your previous relationship so sometimes it's about building you know educating yourself making a list of red flags you know sit with your loved ones or sit with a professional counselor or a mental health provider and just kind of like see what are the red flags now that I'm outside this relationship. What can I see, right? Um, mm-hmm. Educate yourself about abuse and its dynamics. Learn more about it. There's a lot on on Google and YouTube. Uh, there's a lot of resources on narcissism. Work on your boundaries would be my next one and your assertiveness. Yeah. And see on, you know, assertiveness skills, boundary making skills, self-esteem, red flags, educating yourself about abuse. Make a list of things that you need in a relationship. Because sometimes people have really not thought about this. They go forward with a lot of attraction and some simple things of similar family background or where, you know, this and this. These are some of the reasons why it will work out. But you never think about my needs in a relationship. What do I need? Also making a list of things that are an absolute no no for you they're a deal breaker for you in a relationship for example mm-hmm. someone who hits so if I end up with a partner and we're starting to date and I notice that someone hits me then that's an absolute deal breaker for me right so make a list of what are your deal breakers for example if that's substance use if you've been in a relationship before with someone who started with uh, struggled with alcoholic tendencies or was an alcoholic and you don't want to be in a place again like that or that scares you then that's an absolute no for you that's a deal breaker for you right mm-hmm. so making a list of things that are safety factors for you and things that are not safety factors for you so yeah a a lot of these things and it's going to take time and just be patient with yourself and give yourself that time to to you know uh, to get better and it it does get better i work with lots of people who end up in healthy relationships later on so there's definitely hope out there also talk about you know how people don't often report abuse because they're scared about what society will think of them and you know especially in india and i'm sure for you in pakistan as well most often Mm -hmm. people decide for us rather than you know us like ourselves like mm-hmm. abuse is kind of often suppressed by the victim and surprisingly and sadly even by the parents because they are mm-hmm. more often concerned about what people will think of them and you know they're so blinded by fitting into society that they think that their image in society is more important than the mental and physical well-being of their own child absolutely and like and the culture that we live in you know 
abusers most of most often looked at as the fault of the victim i i think you make a good point because i think the the society perspective especially that we have in south asian cultures and abroad as well is about like you know what are people going to say are we going to get enough support we have a very much uh, this culture of victim blaming and you know always the other person's opinion is more important at the expense of our mental health at the expense of our children being abused at the expense of us not having a lot of sex education you know a lot of people find out about it through porn a lot mm-hmm. of our children find out about it through movies and you know how realistic is that how non violent is that so i absolutely agree with you there's a lot of shame based here and uh, a lot of people when they come out with it unfortunately they're blamed by their own families first before they're blamed it's from society you know why why did you go there why did you end up well if you knew that your partner was hitting you why didn't you leave him there's lots of reasons for that <laughs> there's lots yeah. of reasons why people stay in abusive relationships or end up being abused and we need to have a lot of kindness and we need to have trauma informed eyes to be able to see what is really happening for people before we before we get to the finger pointing and the victim blaming mm-hmm. yeah so you know like i was saying so in our culture you know abuse is most often looked at as a fault of the victim like in tv shows you'll see that when an individual comes home and tells their family that you know they've been abused the family won't try to like console the person but they'll directly jump to blame the person and right. you know like i mentioned this is on tv sadly that's the reality as well right and right. we made like we made this country such a unsafe space that people who are assaulted in any way are ashamed to speak up about it they almost have believed that it's their fault like i may be generalizing but most people internalize their feelings after abuse like they feel the main reason and i feel the main reason is because we made such an unsupportive environment for people to kind of come up and speak about it and like i'm in no way saying it's necessary that they have to speak about it but even those who mm-hmm. want to cannot speak about it yeah yeah there's lots of barriers i i hear a lot of people saying well you know why are you reporting your abuse like 5 years later right yeah. why didn't you speak right there and then well people get killed for speaking about their abuse you know exactly um people get shamed the court systems we don't have enough uh, you know speaking about pakistan here enough laws or systems or even just society's reaction why would someone want to speak and go through all of that mm-hmm. you know so it makes a lot of sense why people are so silent because they're trying to protect themselves at the end of the day it's not about not going to court or why didn't you tell people it's about you know what survivors deem best as protecting themselves so we haven't even created safe spaces or you know um, laws that that protect that protect survivors none none at all and i'm really proud of people who do come out besides all of that and then this again they say that this is what's been going on with me this is what's happening it takes mm-hmm. a great amount of guts to do that yeah and a lot of people you know have been abused when they were a child and they of course back then they didn't know what that what happened to them was abuse and they probably didn't have supportive parents to kind of you know speak to about this and even now they prob their parents are not really supportive so they're also kind of scared to you know of their family i mm-hmm. i mean you mentioned the unsupportive laws but i think they're also kind of scared of, of their family what their family will think like in our culture honoring your family is like the most important thing i know it shouldn't mm-hmm. be but it's you know that's how it is over here right 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 absolutely you're you're absolutely right so before society gets a chance to take a dig at you i it's often times your own family and uh, you know you thinking that you're going to be less in the eyes of your parents because your parents are not going to be the one like how dare that person do that to you they're going to yeah. say how dare you get in a situation like this yeah <laughs> so absolutely you're right about that 
Right. So, Jahan, what is financial abuse and what are its effects on the victim? Great question. I think that's also an interesting one, you know, now that we are speaking a little bit about South Asian society and culture. It's a tricky one, especially in a patriarchal society as well, like understanding what is financial abuse and what just a normalized part of society and culture that we see. I think we can start by understanding that all abuse is coming from control. Right. With power, and, we're talking about the power and control we earlier in the podcast. So it's, it's all about a sense of control over the other. Right. So financial abuse is no different. I think a good example is a, a recent Netflix show called The Tinder Swindler. Like no, people yes. have seen that. That's that's a lot of financial abuse. Right. That's mm-hmm. telling people that you love them and then asking them for money. So that's one kind of financial abuse. But financial abuse is a form of, uh, it is a form of violence. It can include, you know, you're withholding money from someone. Mm -hmm. You are controlling all the household spending or you're refusing to include the survivor in financial decisions, you know, being in charge of of allowance or the other person getting an allowance, you know, even if the person is an adult. Then for certain kind of insurance or not insurance or signing different documents in their names, taking loans in their names. You know, if you take a loan with your husband or wife's name without their consent or permission, that's literally financial abuse because you're putting loan on their head or, you know, forcing a family member to work in a family business without being paid. Right. It's just family work here. Right. So family, family, why should we pay you? This is a family business. Then a lot of fraud, a lot of signing of documents. I worked uh, with a particular survivor who her perpetrator had taken a lot of loans and a lot of different things in her names illegal activity and there was a car accident that had happened that somehow the claims were on my client's name so these things they do happen power of attorney can be misused right so uh, for people who, who are listening who don't know power of attorney is a document that says that a person has a so for example i'll give you an example of what is a power of attorney is that if there's a, a child right my understanding of it the parent has the power of attorney that they can make decisions for that person so that means power of attorney mm-hmm. so giving the power of attorney well, it, and it can be misused because if you've written someone's name who can control your finances then they they have it or sometimes people make family members change their will so change your will include this person exclude this person it can be stopping someone from earning their money or getting a job going to work we see that a lot in our culture and society especially after women are married it's about no you're not going to have a job anymore your primary duty is at the home or just literally stopping people from working or what else is it stopping someone from studying that's definitely financial abuse or being like we're not going to fund this we're not going to do that there's definitely financial torture and manipulation manipulate uh, games that uh, perpetrators can play even harassing a family member's colleague so they get fired from their job so that they have to stay at home we've seen that a lot of it has to do with access to bank accounts so you know making a bank account where your uh, partner doesn't have access to it but only you have access to it and you change the passcodes it can be a lot about property also so stealing property or damaging someone's property that's financial abuse because this stuff costs money so if you're damaging my car or if you're damaging my apartment or house this is financial abuse because you've cost me thousands of rupees right yeah they're taking debt so there's there's lots of there's lots of things gambling right so using the survivor's money to go out and gamble or sometimes we see that not letting people use assets so if you know that your partner has certain assets not letting them have access to it for some reason mm-hmm. so yeah there's there, these are definitely um, lots of ways of financial abuse shows up in our culture another way of financial abuse is dowry 
so yeah. you know dowry is giving of money or goods to the bridegroom uh, in exchange for the promise of of marriage right mm-hmm. so that is definitely very prevalent in our culture it, it and we can look at it as a way of that like institutionalized financial abuse that is normalized yeah also you spoke about patriarchy in the beginning a point i wanted to add there is like i feel like in india and also like around the world men feel this sort of entitlement you know they feel like they're sort of more powerful in a way as compared to women so you'll see most that most of the men in rural rural areas will beat their wives if their wife doesn't agree to sleep with them and mm-hmm. like they for some reason cannot take no for an answer you know and i feel this is somewhere deep rooted they kind of get it from their ancestors like i'm in no way of course justifying their actions but just kind of yeah, thinking yeah. where it comes from and it's also you know not every person in rural areas has the privilege of being educated and so they pass this down, these same thoughts and values down to their children mm. and now coming to emotional abuse as well women are barely allowed to speak about their feelings mm. you know they're most they're most often suppressed or asked to shut up you know women can barely ever take a stand for themselves in rural areas especially because mm. in india arguing with your husband is looked at as something disrespectful mm. and so again of course they internalize their feelings and they do it for such a long time that it kind of eats them up and destroys them emotionally you know like how many times uh, have you heard a woman in a rural and not fully urbanized area you know speak up about emotional abuse and actually mm-hmm. go and do something about it if things don't work out and you know then they end the marriage this is very 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 rare because you know because for them women breaking the marriage is looked at as some something shameful like society raises fingers and talks shit about you know her family and ki you know what will lok kya kahenge that is like the mm-hmm. biggest thing over here mm-hmm. like they don't care about their daughter they're more worried about you know what society will think of their entire family yeah yeah and because, yeah. yeah go ahead i mean yeah no and and like the saddest thing is that people blame their fate for all of this like you know mm-hmm. they think that they have done something to deserve all of this you know which is bullshit no one ever deserves any of this absolutely yeah well well said well said it's a lot about you know you know good and evil forces and i think it comes from a lot of our places of insecurity because just thinking that and i think people victim blame because of this as well because if we just think that oh bad things happen to people in the world that's a scary world to live in but if yeah. we come from a belief system that's like well bad things happen to people who do bad things that that's okay that means someone who gets raped they must have done something wrong mm-hmm. so then it gives us a certain security to live in the world right because now mm-hmm. it's oh, okay okay so only people you know who do bad will have bad no sometimes people who do good also get bad situations and you're absolutely right that uh, a lot of the times in our culture a dead daughter is better than a divorced daughter mm-hmm. so um, it's, it's pretty it's pretty unfortunate and i think i really like the point you make made about rural areas where you know they see it their grandfathers doing it then fathers then children then sons it's like a mm-hmm. perpetuating you know culture there's no there's no way that you can kind of come in and tell them oh we're going to give you a workshop on consent they're going to be like yeah. what <laughs> yeah exactly so, it's very hard I, to break the cycle absolutely but i i do i'm a hopeless optimist i do think that things are changing so with industrialization happening and things like this so the world is expanding i do think that even if people don't agree with you know concepts with that they're looking at in tv and stuff it's still really good because it's like planting a seed you know they're not going to get convinced in a day it's going to take multiple lots of exposure for us to get to 
you know, very, very slowly. So I, I think I'm a hopeless optimist. I do think that things have gotten better. People are more aware than they have been. In younger generations, we see so many words being used that, you know, older generations were way, they were not even aware of gaslighting. Like, what's that? Yeah. You know, emotional abuse. Oh, that's a legit thing. And people are aware of it now. And I think that's spreading and because everyone has a TV, cell phone, some kind of access to something or they talk to people and industrialization has made the world global in some ways, even in rural areas that we may think are very disconnected. They still know things, they still know. So I think uh, I think maybe we can't fix the world, but there's definitely things that are happening also. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and you're not the only hopeless optimist when I am. <laughs> okay. Uh, every day I'm like, yes, we can change this country, we can change the world. It's going to take a long while, but... Um... Yeah. So, Jahan, one of the lesser discussed after effects of assault includes becoming reckless and self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Why, uh, why does this happen? So, recklessness is self-soothing. A lot of reckless behavior, whether that's addiction or unprotected sex or spending a lot of money, at the end of the day, there's something that is pleasurable in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something pleasurable in having the control to ruin our own lives as well. It's a way to take back control. It's a way to feel safe sometimes. There's so many theories in in counseling that I could use to explain this. But even depression, self-harm, and suicidal thoughts, the body doesn't know it's self-destructive. When our bodies are even having thoughts on like, kill yourself, your body doesn't want to kill itself. Your body wants to get out of discomfort. That's yeah. it. So our bodies are geared towards like self-protection. Our bodies are geared towards survival. So a lot of the times people who have dissociative tendencies, right? Or are like, you know, um, I can't connect with my body. Well, why is your body dissociated? Your body doesn't know dissociation is bad for you. Your body only thinks, well, this is great. Let me dissociate you so you don't have to feel this pain. So in a lot of the ways, reckless behavior is no different. That's a lot of self-soothing. The mind is still trying to, to protect you. One theory that comes to mind that might be interesting for viewers to listen well, listeners to listen to is a theory called transactional analysis. And people can Google this if they like. It says that we make narratives about how our lives are going to be before we're 12 years old. So we kind of write these life scripts. So we know what our life uh, script will look like. And we act in ways that make it true. This can happen after abuse as well. So because our partner was toxic, a part of ourselves may very um, consciously or unconsciously seek toxic relationships. But it's like an attempt to relive the past or seek people who will reject you or do things that you know are unhealthy for you, right? Because Mm -hmm. then that makes what your abuser said true. Or that makes your life script like I will never be happy true. And Mm -hmm. these are things that are deeper issues that can be explored in therapy on where these things are coming from. But again, I think that defense mechanism or not, reckless behavior is also a way for us to self-protect ourselves. And But it's obviously the people who can see it can be like, oh my God, this is really bad for you. But it's a, it's something to explore. I think for me, it's not like, you know, what are you doing? Or this is horrible. It's more like, why did you have to do this? Mm-hmm. Right? what part of you gets protected or what part of you gets soothed when you do this behavior because whatever it is it's working that's why you do it right yeah and a lot of the times you know our nervous systems our brains they're also attracted to things that feel familiar because our body doesn't know danger our body knows of familiarity so this must be safe Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, like I mentioned earlier, people end up in multiple abusive relationships because it feels safer when you look at someone toxic because your brain knows how to handle it. 
right? Your brain knows how to navigate it because it's been there before. So you look at a, a, like a path like that, a person like that, and it, attraction is fine. It's normal. It happens. So yeah, reckless behavior could also be engaging in um, short-lived relationships or using a lot of substance or spending money, addiction. But we see that with, with people who have trauma histories. And I think the way to do that is to explore that in therapy and see what, what it's doing for you and looking at it with a kind or compassionate lens. Yeah, and I think like, you know, people who display reckless behavior, they're often like, other people are like, oh, this person has gone mad, you know, mm-hmm. they don't understand why they portray, you know, why they, you know, behave that way. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very, people are very quick to jump to conclusions. Right. I think that just makes things worse, you know, it's not really helping anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Right. So lastly, Jahan, what are some ways a survivor can help themselves cope and recover from the pain and scars that their abuse has left them with? Well, I'm a therapist, so I would say go get counseling. <laughs> But educate yourself on abuse, really educate yourself, look at the power and control wheel, Google it, there's lots of domestic violence resources online, Mm -hmm. look at something called cycle of violence or cycle of abuse, look at resources on narcissism, look at resources on gaslighting and educate yourself on what these things are, how they happen, how can we keep ourselves safe, right? Mm -hmm. But mostly just, you know, give yourself that reassurance that, you know, the blame and the shame for your healing is not yours to carry, but the responsibility to heal is yours to carry, right? Mm -hmm. So what has happened to you is not your fault. And what you did in the situations that you were in, you had to do it to get out of that situation. But no one else is going to come take care of us. So it's also about taking active responsibility for your life. And if you do struggle with things being like, you know, I'm going to get educated on this, or I want to get out of this, or I don't want to end up in another abusive relationship. I want to have a better relationship with my body and my mind and people around me and myself. So then that's that responsibility that we're taking. And with with slow paced work and with time, that trust will come back. But it's just about giving yourself a lot, a lot of compassion and Mm -hmm. space for growth well that was a good episode i'd say Uh, (laughs) it was a great episode i loved it yeah yeah i really enjoyed like there's a lot to take in you know there's so much to learn from this episode so many things that you know i probably hadn't thought about so i I, I don't know if i told you but i've been making notes for this episode for almost a month now so yeah Mm -hmm. a lot of research a lot to learn from this episode a lot to learn from you you know a lot of things that i don't know so thank you john for being with us honestly you um, are most welcome, Amman. Always a pleasure to be here. I, I, I absolutely love doing this episode. And uh, I can't wait for people to hear it. Okay, and exciting. To everyone who's listening to Leo, thank you for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.